0: In 1939, on the brink of World War II, the Ministry of Information was formed by the British government as a department who would be responsible for publicity and propaganda during the entirety of the conflict. The imminent threat of German attack was felt by many who lived in the city of London, and the British government sought to inspire and instruct their citizens in this difficult task of endurance. To bolster the strength of the people for their daily activities and fight against the mass hysteria that could be caused by strong anxiety, the leaders in Britain cultivated a a slogan campaign. With a bold, colored background, the posters were required to be similar in style and featured the symbolic crown of King George, along with a simple yet effective font. The first two posters, your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory." and the second, Freedom is in Peril, were produced by His Majesty's Stationary Office. These two were posted in public transport and shop windows upon notice boards and hoardings across Britain. The third and final and most popular poster of the set was, again, very straightforward and to the point. Can you guess what that was? Keep Calm and Carry On. It resonated well with the stiff upper lip constitution of many Brits. The plan in place for this poster was to issue it only upon the invasion of Britain by Germany. As this never happened, the poster was never officially seen in public. It is believed that most of the Keep Calm posters were destroyed and reduced to pulp by the end of the war in 1945. However, nearly 60 years later, a bookseller from Barter Books stumbled across a hidden copy among a pile of dusty old books bought from an auction. A small number also remain in the National Archives and the Imperial War Museum in London and a further 15 were discovered in BBC's Antiques Roadshow. No record remains of the unknown civil servant who originally came up with a simple and British saying, keep calm and carry on. The idea of self-reinforced statements to bolster courage and to focus energy, especially in the face of danger or distress, is noble and can be effective for wartime morale. But for the Christian, for the one who finds their hope in Christ, in him alone, it can be dangerous to find our only hope in ourselves and in our will to endure pain and turmoil. Is this the Christian life, simply a matter of gritting our teeth, developing some tenacity, keeping calm and carrying on? Can we continue to live faithfully in this world by sheer and simple willpower? Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Brit himself, preacher, likened the lifestyle of this to a type of Stoicism. He would write, "...the Stoic was a serious and thoughtful man, an honest one who believed in facing the facts of life. Having done so, he had come to the conclusion that life is a difficult business and a hard task, and that there is only one way of going through it, and that is that you must exercise firm discipline upon yourself." Life, said the Stoic, will come and attack you, it will batter and beat you, and the great art of living, he said, is to remain standing on your feet. And the only way to do it is to brace your back, your shoulders, to set firm your upper lip, to go in for the philosophy of courage and say, I'm going to be a man, and just decide that you're gonna, not going to give in, you're going to not be defeated. Whatever may happen to you, you are still standing, you're going on, and you will stick it to the end. Friends, there's something to be said about persevering to the end, sticking close to Jesus, being obedient to his word, but at what point do we bend towards Stoicism at the cost of submitting our life at the promptings of the Holy Spirit? If we're accustomed to living our life and our strength, then we're tempted to this behavior that really looks more like passive cynicism. Simple joy, faith, hope, and thankfulness are absent if our mindset is just keep calm and carry on. We'll tend to look for hope in this world for our ability to carry on instead of looking to Jesus. This worldly hope isn't consistent with a gospel hope grounded in the word of God. And Lloyd-Jones said of this, it may be very noble, I'll grant you that, but it's a noble paganism. Keeping calm and carrying on is not a perspective hope for the Christian. There's a better way rooted in focusing our eyes and our hearts upward. Something better than what's found in our shallow pockets of grit and determination. The people of Haggai's day Had harder days in their past and yet harder days for their future as they waited for God to answer the promises that He'd given them. Would they just grit their teeth, push harder, keep their head down? Or would they trust in the promise of God that He was, in fact, coming one day to make all things right? What about you? Is that how you intend to live the rest of your Christian life? Haggai's last message here comes to the governor, and it's a special message of clarity of God's power and God's promise. We come to the conclusion of this book. So I'm going to spend the remaining moments that we have this morning looking at the last four verses Of Haggai chapter 2 and see how God can apply it to our lives. If you haven't already, turn with me to the book of Haggai chapter 2. If you're using a Bible that's provided, it's on page 744, and I would encourage you to have a Bible open as we walk through this, otherwise you'll get lost. And follow with me as I read just these four verses at the end of chapter 2, starting in verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the twenty-fourth day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth, and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us grace this morning as we look at your Word, that you would use my words to speak of your words, and that your people would be stretched and taught by you, and it's for your glory alone that we gather to sit under the preaching of the word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you're taking notes there, there's a sheet you should have received when you walked in. There's two points to the top of your sheet, so you can have room to write uh, however you see fit. But the first one is the power of God. This is the fourth and final sermon from the prophet Haggai. And he, he finishes here in verse 23, and we don't read of any other further ministry by him. He fades off from the scene in the Scriptures. And the fourth sermon here is on the same day as the third sermon, which was in verses 10 through 19 that we looked at last week. But this sermon seems to be pointed to just one person, to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, who's in the midst of this group. And Zerubbabel's lineage seems to be obscure. We're not sure of all the details. We're told in this book that he's he's the son of Shealtiel, and you can read more about him in 1 Chronicles 3 as Shealtiel is listed as the eldest son of the exiled king, Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin had been taken prisoner to Babylon after a short reign of three months and ten days. And Zerubbabel is now the governor, having recognized by the Persian authorities as the leader of this group. But his greater significance will be the lineage that comes from him to the Messiah that we can read about in the book of Matthew. God will use him, God will use whom he will, and here he's choosing this governor is rubbable in his line, and he brings back to the attention of his, of his hearers that God has power in this. He says there in, in, in verse 22, verse 21, excuse me, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. Shaking the heavens and the earth is a traditional language used in the Old Testament to describe the visible appearing of God, a theophany. When, when God appears, everything in the created order is shaken up. Even seemingly solid mountains tremble with fear. Just a, a word of encouragement. The rocks will cry out if we don't worship. So as I look around during a worship time, you need to worship. Don't let the rocks do it for you, okay? When, when God appears, he says he will shake the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth, that's a Hebrew idiom for the whole created realm. And the way that the world works would be shook up. It's not, it's not a shaking down to tear down a properly built up world. No, he's coming in to destroy something that's, that's not built correctly. It's not that he's coming in saying, oh, it's strong, it's functioning the right way, I'm going to tear it down. No, he's going to shake it up so it's made Right? Trying to picture this this week, and I went to Zach's office to get some feedback. But you remember those toys as a kid? You usually got them as party favors, and it had like five or six metal balls, and you had to shake it or, or flick it, and to try to get them into the little curve? Anyone at all? And you had to shake it in some way to get it right, right? To, to, to win the game, so to say. And that's the, the image that he's saying here that he's gonna shake it to get it right, to finally get it right to make things right, to make things ordered the way they should be. And God's shaking of the world will result not in a a disordering, but rather a proper ordering of a world that is out of joint. The people in Haggai's day didn't live in a rightly ordered world where everything was working the way it should be. They lived in a disorienting world, shattered by sin, broken by evil, disheveled by selfishness. These people were very familiar with Psalm 2 do you well to read Psalm 2 this afternoon. Spend some time considering the God we serve and his view of the world and of governments and of people. So they knew of their kings and rulers of this world. They knew of them taking a stand against the Lord of glory and his anointed. And they knew of the history. They had seen the Lord's anointed, the d- Davidic king rejected and cast off by God, the thrones and d- dominions of this world bringing judgment over God's people. And their fathers, they knew all about it Been carried into exile in Babylon. They knew their God. They knew that God didn't mess around. They knew that God wasn't going to let bygones be bygones. He would remember everything and He would answer. They knew this. So clear in their minds was this disordered world that they lived in. And if we're honest this morning, we know of a disordered world too. We we know the feelings of things not being right, things are cosmically disordered. Perhaps you believe that when you became a Christian, things would get better all around. Your, your relationships would change, you might get along with your family a whole lot better, that things would be restored and renewed, but you're still in the midst of family trauma. Perhaps you believe that all the sin that was done to you growing up would fade from your memory when you were converted, but those memories are still there. They linger and they still haunt you. All that you've endured at the hands of sinful people. Perhaps you were convinced that becoming a Christian would result in a clear career path bringing more than enough. Not so much stress, but instead you find yourself at a dead-end job going nowhere, unfulfilled. Perhaps you were convinced that when you became a Christian the struggle with sin would end. And you would have final and complete victory over, over the day-to-day sin struggle. That you wouldn't be as tempted as you were before. You, you would have the right answers against sin. You would think clearly opposing sin. But instead you, you continue to struggle and wrestle unsuccessfully against the deep, entrenched, besetting sins. Friends, I have news for you. God is not going to let disorder reign forever. He won't. He has the power to end it. And he will bring it to an end. And he says, God says through Haggai that he's about to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down everyone by the sword of his brother. He doesn't Say which throne or which kingdom, but these terms are talking about all kingdoms, all governments. Every form of government or power or principality that sets itself against the Lord and his anointed will come to nothing. God will wipe them out like a snow globe. God will shake and shake until there's no resemblance once there was. However strong we think the governments in our world may seem, however comfortable entrenched in their power they may be, when the Lord comes to make a final reckoning, their power will be broken once and for all. That's what it means to be sovereign. He will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, which points our minds back to the story in Genesis 19 when God overthrew the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, raining fire from heaven on them. And he says that he's coming for these kingdoms and these thrones. In the past, God destroyed the Canaanites for their sin, casting them out of the land in the front of Joshua as God had promised he would. And now he promises he will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down. And for me, my mind went to Exodus and God famously overthrew the chariots with their riders down under the ways of the Red Sea. And now again, he will do the same. And as God sent confusion among her enemies in Israel and past wars so that they fought against themselves, Haggai says, everyone by the sword of his own brother. God is faithful to his promises to his people, and he is faithful to his promises to judge the wicked in their sin. Friends, God never says anything in Scripture that he will not fulfill perfectly. There is never a word or sentence that God will not bring to complete fruition. We can trust our God. He was reminding his people with these simple words of all the times that God was faithful to bring low those that spurned his word and embraced evil in pursuit of their own selfishness. God is patient, though, for sure. But his patience will run its course and he will bring full and complete judgment on all that reject him. He will be faithful to his word. My unbelieving friends that are here, I would never want to sugarcoat truth. We are happy that you join us this morning and you're always welcome here. But I want to be clear with you this morning. God is holy and God is just. He cannot be with sin. He cannot exist around sin. And we as humans were created in his image and his likeness, but we fell with Adam in the garden. So many years ago, the human race fell into sin, rejecting God. And we are born into this world infatuated with sin, with ourselves, with what makes us most happy and content, We do not naturally follow God. Instead, we choose to follow our own wants and our own needs. And because of our rejection of God, we are separated from him. Every human is separated from God. And there is no bridge, there's no way for us to to span this gulf on our own merit, our own strength. We need a rescue. We need someone to bring us to God. then Christ comes on the scene. The one who has lived perfectly, who has never worried, who never sought to earn acceptance with God. The one who was never intimidated by the sinful world. He is the perfect human and yet God. There was no sin in himself. And he came to earth, he humbled himself to be a, a man taking on the infirmities of us all to be with us, to show us the way to heaven. And then he went to the cross to make a way for us to be reunited with God the Father. Jesus Christ took on our sin on himself on the cross and he died. And then he rose again on the third day to show that that sacrifice was accepted by God. See, the cross means everything to the Christian. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I have great news for you. There is a better life than the one you've been living. There is a life that, while still full of trials and difficulties, has more and better friends and purpose and joy and family and reward and peace and interest and usefulness and hope than you've ever imagined. The joy and peace and purpose that Christ gives is not dependent on your outward circumstances when you're a Christian. See, all people want this, which is why one of the reasons a book about your best life now sells, because they want peace. But fundamentally, this good life comes through being forgiven of your sins against God, and being given a reconciled relationship with your creator. But this news is for today and it cannot be disregarded. If you are firm in your unbelief in Jesus and are unwilling to bow the knee to him, you need to know today, friend, that God will not change his mind on that last day when you stand before him in your sin. He will not look down on you. And he will not just pass you by. He will not look over your life and see all the good things that you did on this earth. He will not be moved with emotion and just say, it's okay. Just go on through. I know you tried to be a good person. God will not do that. He will not wink at your sin. There are some, even perhaps today in this assembly, that have this wrong notion that God will not be faithful to his word on that last day. And they believe that God will make an exception. God will not suddenly and surprisingly be lenient on sin. He will not wave you through God will not do that. He will be faithful to His word. I have to warn you of this this morning. Our God doesn't change. And for the Christian, that's encouraging. But for those that are staunch in their unbelief, it should be terrifying. His word is clear. We read it this morning in our Bible reading in Numbers chapter 16. God will not be outmatched. He will not be outsmarted. He will not be manipulated to change in any way. God will continue to be holy. He will be faithful. He will not change. And if you're hoping for a God to be something other than God, then you're hoping for an impossibility. He will be faithful to his word. And I've been praying this week, I know others have been, that you would respond to the gospel, that you would turn from your trust in yourself and in your life and you would turn to Christ. He is more than sufficient. He is faithful to his word. Friends, there are many in the midst here that would love to talk with you myself along with the other pastors and elders would love to sit down and talk more with you and so I want to encourage you to come find one of us well this morning we've seen the power of God described and last we'll see the promise of God was God's covenant with David and his line now done how are they to trust God any longer if it looked like he was done with his people Well, God has one last word in in the last verse of this book for his people and God's people listened as he spoke to Zerubbabel in verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. See, in the world's eyes, Zerubbabel's life didn't seem to matter much. He was of little significance. He was given a position of minor influence in a small backwater province of the empire. It was really a career-killing position. And his status wasn't much higher than the people that he served. Even though he was a descendant of David, he was, he was an inheritor of a cast-off line that seemed to be rejected by God forever. And I'm sure Zerubbabel was discouraged. He was downhearted as a leader of this rebuild Things weren't moving as quickly as he thought or, or hoped for. He was discouraged, and many leaders are within the Word of God. And that's why Satan knows to attack the leaders of God's people first so that he can get to the rest of them later. It's also why in the book of 1 Thessalonians 5, the apostle Paul turns to the believers that he dearly loved and cared for it and says to them, brothers, pray for us. I know that you pray for me and the other elders and I would encourage you to continue. Friends, part of your responsibility as a church member is to pray for your elders and pastors. I want to encourage you to keep doing it. We desperately need your prayers. But not just us as elders and pastors. to Pray for the leaders and those that serve the church. Pray for the Iwana leaders every week. Pray for Sunday school teachers Pray for those that that serve here in this ministry because we need it. We need the prayers. We don't know exact circumstances of Zerubbabel and what he was facing, but I'm almost certain after serving as a pastor for almost 20 years, I'm sure it was discouragement. There's always discouragement in ministry, the possibility of it. And perhaps where Zerubbabel was at this moment, he saw around him and looked at his ministry, his his, his life, his work, this little nation of Judah had just come out of captivity, absolutely drained of all political, religious worth and strength, and he's standing there looking around and seeing all the nations and empires, the Medo-Persian Empire, the rising empires, the great nations that are built like a wall around Judah. And perhaps. He saw all of this, although he was in, in liberation and he was in freedom. Perhaps he was beginning to despair and feared for the future remnant of the Jews, the people of God. What's going to happen to them? What's going to happen to him? They've been downtrodden for seventy years in Babylon. They had got out. They were given permission to rebuild the temple. They were, and yet they're discouraged by the Samaritans, and so they put it off. For sixteen years they stopped rebuilding. They instead focus on their own houses. And God calls them back, gives them permission again to begin this rebuild. And yet they're downtrodden, they're discouraged. I'm sure the stuffing had been knocked out of them to the point that they, just, they don't know what to do next. And there's the rebel bulls standing there, head of this motley crew, looking at them, looking around at others pressing in against them and perhaps he is despairing at the circumstances that are facing him and the nation and I was thinking this week Zerubbabel is really a lot like us see circumstances in our life have this tendency to discourage us doesn't it I don't know where you are at but the Holy Spirit knows where you are. and Perhaps the circumstances in your life is a lot like Zerubbabel this morning. They seem despairing. You don't know where to turn to. Your enemies are against you. Everything seems against you. And friends, what you don't need on a Sunday morning is a pep talk. You don't need a high five and encouragement and a keep calm and carry on. You need hope. And it has to be found outside of yourself. Because you can't muster up the peace on your own. You need hope that only comes from God and from his word. Last night, as I was reviewing and finishing my sermon, I read a story about Leonard Ravenhill and his father, who was a man who was not a great preacher or anything, but he realized his ministry for God, and he went to hospitals day and night, and he was an evangelist, and he went to hospitals to talk to men and women, and some were dying, some were really ill, and boys and girls, and he would just want to talk to them about the Savior. And he led hundreds to Christ through this ministry. He was especially good at witnessing to Roman Catholics because he was Roman Catholic before the Lord saved him out of it. And one day he was talking to a man and the man turned to him and the man objected and said, I I prayed to God and God didn't hear me. And Ravenhill's father turned to him and said, "Now, now look, if the king of England were to come into this room right now and I was to sit on the bed with him and I was to ask him for five pound note because I'm a subject of his nation, do you think he would give it to me? And the man said, well, I don't think he'd give it to you. And then Ravenhill's father went on to say, well, what about the Prince of Wales, his son? He'd come into this room and asked for a five-pound note from the king, and he said, of course he would give it to him, for that's his father. He's his son. And Ravenhill turned to that man and said, yes, that is, isn't it? It has to do with the relationship. Christian, listen this morning. Whatever you're experiencing today in the last few weeks whatever there is lacking in your life or spiritual life, realize this morning the wealth that you have in Jesus Christ. You have access to God the Father at any moment. Just like my children have complete and unfettered access to me at any point in the night, you cannot come to my bedside at 2 (laughs) a.m. They can. At any point, unfettered access to their dad they're my children Christian you have that same access to God the Father at any point any moment of the day we have unlimited access to God and unlimited wealth in the Lord Jesus we have everything we need in him And Haggai's message to the rubble, even though he doesn't feel very strong in his estimating of himself, God has chosen him for this position, and he would be with him. On that day, declare the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. See, Hergai uses the word signet ring here deliberately to announce the restoration of the Lord's protection for the line of David. Ancient kings used signet rings to designate authority, honor, or ownership. A signet contained an emblem unique to the king. Official documents were sealed with a dollop of soft wax and pressed with the king's signet, usually kept on a ring of a finger. And such a seal certified the document is genuine, much like a notary public stamp today. But why is a rubbable? It's important to understand who Zerubbabel was. He was the governor of the rebuilt Jerusalem and is himself royal blood, being a descendant of David and the grandson of Judah's king, Jehoiachin. And a century earlier, though, God declared through the prophet Jeremiah that a curse would come to Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jehoiachin, as it says in Jeremiah 22. As I live, declares the Lord, the son of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, with the signet ring in my right hand, yet I would tear you off. And God did that faithful to his word. Jehoiachin lost the throne when he was deported to Babylon. In this passage of Jeremiah is a picture of the signet ring being removed by God. Jehoiachin was one of the last kings of Judah before the people were taken into exile. But now God is promising to pick up the line of David through Zerubbabel. And sure enough, if we turn to Matthew chapter 1, that's what you read. And the language here of taking and choosing reinforced the point that the appointment of Zerubbabel as a dependent of the Davidic line, which represents the renewal of that ancient commitment on God's part with his people. The succession of, of dynasty that had been broken in Jehoiachin will be restored through a new act of election as in the person of Zerubbabel. And God will once again choose the line of David as his own. And in spite of the lack of outward majesty in the world's eyes, God chooses Zerubbabel for his task of overseeing the rebuilding of this temple. And so God's promises in these last verses of Haggai are messianic in nature. They're not made to to Zerubbabel the man per se so much as they're made to Zerubbabel to the heir of the throne of David. He would be the protector of God's chosen people, the rebuilding of the temple, the restorer of dignity to the Davidic line, But friends, in all of this, he's pointing to Jesus Christ. See, all of God's promises through Haggai would finally find their perfect fulfillment in Jesus. He's the point of the Bible. And the significance of the renewer of the promise through Zerubbabel for us is that it reminds us that God will never abandon or forsake his people. God will be faithful to his promises to his people. But just because Zerubbabel was mentioned here, he's not the one the people were to look forward to. He was not the one where their hope must be found, and the same for us. We're not to look for in this world our hope. It won't be found. We're to look at the greater son of Zerubbabel, the one whom Zerubbabel pointed to. Jesus was like Zerubbabel in many ways. Jesus had no form of majesty or position that would attract people to himself. Instead, he was humble and lowly. The Gospel said he took on the form of a servant. And he would go to the very length of humility by succumbing to death on a cross. And even on the cross, he looked a lot like Jehoiachin, who was cast off and abandoned by God. He didn't look like the New Zerubbabel, God's chosen servant. He looked like the one who was forgotten, who was shattered by God and not the nations. Remember those standing around the cross in that day didn't lift up praise to Jesus. They mocked him. And they believed without a doubt that God wasn't with him and had abandoned him. If you remember in Luke's Gospel, they mocked the people stood by watching But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. He is the Christ of God, this chosen one. See, those that stood by to watch him die, they looked as if he was under God's curse, rejected, forsaken by the Father. And indeed, they were right in a way. The scoffers were yelling, condemning him because he was under God's curse. On the cross, Jesus was abandoned by the Father. That's why on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God couldn't look at his son any longer because his son was bearing the wrath of God due our sin. And friends, when Jesus died, the earth shook and convulsed. As if it's unable to endure such trauma, but on that occasion it was not shaken by the appearing of God, but the disappearing, leaving his beloved son to his fate. Beneath this temporary rejection of Jesus by God was an eternal promise that cannot be broken. Just like underneath the temporary rejection of the Davidic line in Jehoiachin was deeper, an unbreakable commitment to us through the family line and the redemption. Isaiah says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we're healed. The curse that was on Jesus was our curse to do our sin. And bearing it to death, he buried the curse once and for all. The rejection that he endured by the Father was our rejection. And through his darkness, he brought us back into the light of God's favor and blessing. See, at the cross, God shook the heavens and earth. And on the third day, Christ rose from the dead as a confirmation that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. Today is March 1st, and it's a custom here in our church family to celebrate, to remember the Lord's death. and We should remember the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And to do that as a church, we do that in a meal, like bread and juice, to remember what Jesus Christ did for us in the cross, and that's what we're going to do. It's a way for us to tangibly remember why Jesus came to earth. He came to die as a sacrifice for our sins. See, we have an opportunity this morning to see the word as we partake of the Lord's Supper friends, this is one of the ordinances of the church. It's the duty of the Christian. And So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then I would warn you to not partake of this meal, to let the, the food pass in front of you. This is only for Christians who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you to watch as we worship together and then find one of us after the service. We'd love to talk with you more about this. And to the Christian this morning, you need to understand, be reminded this morning that you do not partake of this meal as a perfect Christian. You and I have all sinned this week, either in deed or word or in mind. So as we pass the bread and the juice, I encourage you to spend some time considering your sin and confess it to God. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so I'm gonna pray as the men come forward for the bread and they will celebrate together. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to die on our behalf. His broken body for us causes us to remember. His life on the cross was sufficient to pay for our sins. And we thank you, Jesus, for not leaving us in our sins. Thank you, Father, for sending him on our behalf. Thank you for being faithful to your word. We glorify you this morning in this remembrance of you, God, and send your Son to die for us. We pray this is in his name. Amen.